This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. The modern athlete is more than just the performer that you see on his or her particular field. There are a lot more requirements that are put upon them than just simply getting up to the plate and swinging for a home run or, in the world of cycling, finishing first on the final lap. When it comes down to the modern athlete, there is a lot of expectations that they are not just going to be the person who performs the best, but they're also the person who creates the best content, the person who appears the best in front of the media or who best exemplifies what their sponsors want them to be and in the end becomes a spokesperson. A lot of us train all the time to be the best performer on the bike, but doing more than that, being the best performer when it comes down to social media or being the best performer when it comes down to your interviews post-race, that's a untaught most of the time skill. When it comes down to how you want to do this, how you want to express your inner monologue to the public, there are different ways that athletes go about doing it. In today's episode, Lindsay Goldman, open but not obvious, we sit down and talk with somebody who's become a master at expressing her inner feelings, her opinions, her struggles and her triumphs to the community as a whole. Lindsay has been incredibly open over the last 10 or so years of her professional bike racing career, whether through her blog, The Dirt Field, on social media, or as an interviewee for various different cycling publications. She now has a tremendously successful podcast of her own, USA Communique, in which she helps people understand how USA Cycling works and expresses those feelings and frustrations that we all have as members of the community in a positive way with good answers and great feedback. The question is, how did she get there? How did she get to this point in time in her life, going through the various stages of being a professional bike racer, GM and owner of a professional team, and now to the world of being the director of membership for USA Cycling? We tell this story in two parts today, in two chapters. The first chapter is about her openness and her willingness to express her feelings and emotions. And in the second chapter is about what is going on behind those scenes, the things that are not so obvious. Normally, I do a little Hey, Meet Lindsay Goldman introduction as a means of introducing a guest to the audience. But to be honest, so much has happened in your world in the last two years, whether it's a new job, uh, the successful conclusion of your team, winning bike races, having a child, that I don't even know where to begin by introducing you. So how do you describe yourself to folks these days? I'm pausing for a very long time because I'm thinking about that and I don't. (laughs) Uh, 
I don't often have occasion to describe myself. Lately, I've been meeting a lot of new colleagues or people in my role at USA Cycling, and they do the description for me. And they make me sound far cooler than I ever would. But they generally say something along the lines of, this is Lindsay Goldman. She formerly ran the Hoggins Berman Superman Women's Professional Cycling Team. She was also a racer, and now she is the Director of Membership for USA Cycling. We had the fortune of having you here in the Mid-Atlantic for a long time. In fact, you uh, basically grew up in bike racing here in the D.C., Virginia area. How have you sort of evolved or changed as a bike racer, advocate, person, mother, in the last three or four years since you moved? That's another difficult question. I think the biggest thing that probably changed in the last two things that changed in the last few years would be becoming a mother and running a professional cycling team. So when I was in the Mid-Atlantic region, I originally started as a cross-country mountain bike racer, and then I switched over to racing on the road with a little bit of cyclocross mixed in there as well. But the entire time that I was there, my objectives were to get to the highest level of the sport I could achieve and try to go professional and get a contract with a professional team. And then over time, I ended up starting my own professional cycling team and spending a lot of time and energy on the management side of that while still racing. And that gave me a lot more insight into the business of professional cycling and a lot of the pitfalls and challenges associated And I think that shifted how I viewed cycling, especially at the professional level. And then having a child obviously changes a substantial amount of your life in terms of uh, just the logistics of living and time and energy and the things you have to prioritize on a day-to-day basis, but it also shifts your outlook. So not that having a child is in any way a higher calling, not that it's not great, but it's, you know, if... 14-year-old girls can do it accidentally as a result of having too much Southern comfort. I, I can't exactly say it's, you know, some noble life-changing thing I did, but when you look and think, I have a child and I have a family and I have these obligations and I'm supposed to be a role model, and if I accidentally say, shit, my child walks around saying, sit, 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 for the next week, uh, it in some way reshapes how you view something like a bike race. So I would go and line up at a race last year or this year, and while it mattered, it mattered a lot less than it did, let's say, five years ago when I was racing in the Mid-Atlantic and thought getting a pro contract would be the be-all and end-all of my existence. Having a child made me realize that in the grand scheme of life, it is just a bike race. And whether I won or I lost, I would still have to go home and do my laundry and pay my taxes and now parent my child and that there were larger implications to the things I was doing outside of bike racing that really should take priority. And so now as a person, I still value bike racing and competition and I still love it as much as I ever did. But I think I have a slightly healthier perspective on how important it should be both as an activity and as a way to self-identify. As a follower of Lindsay Goldman, 
on social media or on the internet, we are presented with this moniker that you've created, the dirt field. I've heard a potentially apocryphal story about the origins of that. So I've got you now. You're right here. What is the dirt field and how did that come to be? It was while I was working at a courthouse in, I guess it probably was around 2005. I was not in cycling in any capacity at the time. The extent of my athletics, uh, actually, I did nothing. Uh, At one point, someone bet me that I couldn't run a mile in under 10 minutes, and I think I tried, but it was like 11 p.m., and I remember distinctly wearing knee socks. But anyways, no sports were involved in my life at that point, but I had this colleague who was this sassy, opinionated older woman. And at one point I was talking about something. I think I was due to get married soon. And I don't know. I was talking, we were making jokes about me sowing my wild oats and whatnot. And she chimed in and said something like, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Sometimes you get there and it's just a dirt field. And that made me laugh. And I never really at the moment thought that it was going to turn into anything. But shortly thereafter, I started a blog And I needed a name, and so I picked The Dirt Field. And then as I got into cycling at the same time as social media platforms were evolving and things like Twitter came into being, I needed a name to use. And The Dirt Field just seemed to be something I'd already taken. I bought the web domain at the time, or whatever you call it, leasing it, buying it. But it just stuck. And now it's not even something I think about. I can't really imagine changing it, even if I wanted to. I don't really care enough to change it. And everybody knows me as the dirt field. And one of the great things about you as an elite athlete that you have is this very human, very real side. You write a lot of articles for cycling tips or for other cycling publications, your blog that's out there touches on topics that are highly personal to some people, but to you, it's just, here's information. Here's my emotion. Here's my feelings. These are my opinions. The ultimate question is why, why be so out there with people? Why not? I guess that's, it doesn't occur to me to bother being fake or putting on some sort of pretense. I wouldn't say I don't care what people think. That's not true. I care very much. I don't, I certainly don't want people to think I'm rude or disrespectful or irreverent of things that are important, but I'm not really worried about if I share something and someone I don't know, if I talk about having an eating disorder and somebody thinks less of me as a result, I really give zero shits. Like, it just doesn't matter to me because that is who I am. And I just think there's there's this concept of authenticity that people talk about in their online persona and social media. And to me, it seems comical because it's talked about in a way that makes it seem like it needs to be cultivated. Like, you have to go out of your way to be authentic. And really, that seems ridiculous because isn't it just a matter of showing up and not pretending? Like, I'm very authentic when I drop my kid off at daycare and I'm wearing my pajamas and no makeup and I look like a grungy hobo, but that's just life. Like, that's reality. When when I'm at a bike race, I probably 
smell and look grungy and my cycling shoes are incredibly gross and pretending otherwise or trying to convey this image that I'm always put together and polished. It just, that seems like a level of energy I'm not willing to commit. I'd rather be honest and upfront. And when it came to talking about things online, it just seemed like there were a lot of people that had experiences or feelings that they felt like they needed to be private about or needed to be kept away from the spotlight or they were worried about repercussions if they shared them. And I just thought that was, I don't want to say it was stupid because I understand why, but I also think it's unnecessary to pretend we're not all very human. It's like when you get into a relationship, you spend an inordinate amount of time pretending to the other person that you don't poop. Like, really, everybody poops. All humans poop. I have a small child. I guarantee you, she poops a lot. Everybody poops. And yet, somehow, especially women feel this need to pretend for so long they don't poop. Like, I'm going to hide every trace of it. I'm going to hold it for as long as possible. I cannot let this person I am dating realize that I am somebody who poops. And it's just silly. So I felt like it was important to just not try to be anybody but me. The article that I'm thinking of that you most recently wrote for Cycling Tips is about being a mother and being an athlete, uh, specifically dealing with all sorts of issues. I mean, it's one of the most wide ranging articles that I've read from when can I stop training? When can I start training? What do I expect? Now that you've crossed into this threshold where people listen to you, where your openness is expected, are you trying to use this as a vehicle to make people aware? Mm, No, I really have no agenda at all. Uh, In terms of anything I do online at this point, it's basically either to support my team or now going forward to support USA Cycling where I feel like I believe in what we're doing or it's to support the sponsors that support me. And fortunately, I've had a hand in selecting all of them. So none of it is fake promotion or, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that something is great if I'm secretly thinking this is terrible. But in terms of things like that article you're referring to on cycling tips, that came from being pregnant and then postpartum and trying to figure out what I could and couldn't do and what to expect from my body and recovery and all the things related to that entire life experience. And there really was a dearth of information online. So I wanted to change that. And I'm no medical expert, so I tried to caveat it appropriately so that nobody could come after me and say, you said this was fine and I did it and it was terrible and something bad happened. But I wanted to at least say, here is one person's experience because I personally am the master of Googling anything and everything ever. And it's always helpful when I can find a firsthand account of something that is helpful to educate me on what I might be experiencing or about to experience. So I figured I might as well just write all this down so the next person or people who have similar questions when they take to the Googles to find answers will hopefully find some now. Do you feel that the fact that you've been so out there with your opinions, whether it's about sponsorships or the value or role of money 
in bike racing or even bike racing's administration, the running of it. Do you think that being out there and being outspoken has impacted the way that teammates or opponents, sponsors or supporters have viewed you? I'm sure. Uh, I'm certain there are things that people think about me that they don't take the time to share. Although with the wonders of social media, it seems like we don't really filter any thoughts ever. But mostly people have come to me and expressed appreciation for what they see as my willingness to be honest about difficult subjects, to be a straight shooter, to not sugarcoat things or pretend I'm better than I am or have not had shitty experiences that I've had. As far as sponsors are concerned, ever since I took on a management role with a team and became responsible for the face of an organization, there I became more conscientious about what I would say publicly. And that's not to say that I would filter to a point of being dishonest or unnatural, but you know, there's certain things that might have that might come out of my mouth in person or that might have been something I'd write on Twitter five years ago. And now I'm more deliberate. And I think that that while it came from being mindful of the fact that I'm running a business and now I'm an employee of an organization and that I represent not just me, but sponsors and a brand. But it's also part of growing up. At some point, you realize that your first thought or your initial gut reaction should probably not be the thing you commit to writing in public. That's just a matter of being wise and learning that sometimes it's best to hold one's tongue. (laughs) And I think in terms of the team and things I've published, I've thought very carefully about what I've said, how I've said it, the medium I've used, and I generally write iteratively. So I'll write a column generally on the trainer because that for some reason ends up being the best place of inspiration, time, and words. But I'll write something on the trainer and then I will read it again after the ride and maybe the next day. And oftentimes if it's anything remotely controversial, I'll send it to someone else and say, you know, please check my tone, make certain I don't sound like an asshole or I don't say something that will offend somebody then I read it again a few more times to proofread it, and then I send it out. So there's there's gates in place to ensure that something idiotic doesn't leave my mouth or fingertips and instantly reach the public. You were the owner and general manager of Hoggins, Berman, Superman for five years, correct? Uh, four. Four? Started in yeah. 2015? Uh, we founded it, John O. Coulter, and I founded it in fall of 2015. So our first season was 2016. So we had 16, 17, 18, and 19. So over four years, you just concluded your fourth and final season of the team. Isn't it great? <laughs> yes. I guess that's the first question is, how do you feel? Great. Incredibly relieved. I, I loved running the team. There were things about it that were wonderful It was an incredible experience. The last two years in particular were absolutely excellent. We had some of the best times of my life, and there were massive challenges that I had to learn how to overcome, address. I had to learn how to be a leader, and I learned through trial and error and several colossal failures along the way. But ultimately, there came a point where it was time to move on, and I felt like we had 
I don't want to say we had reached the pinnacle of what the team was going to be because I think there's always room to improve and evolve, but we sure as shit weren't doing it on my watch because I just, I'd run out of energy and running a professional team is an incredible amount of work, not just at the high level in terms of building the brand and structuring the program and identifying objectives and executing them, but all the minutia of the smallest things like making certain that everybody's shoes fit and that multiply that by 500 and that is what it is like to run a team and the idea of doing that for another year was just terrible so I feel pretty good about being done we went out on a high note and everyone on the team and all the staff members have moved on to other things that I don't want to say better because I'd like to think we had something great but they've moved on to new opportunities that seem to be a great fit for all of them so net net it's all good so just to make sure all the women are going to land on their feet no matter who they are right uh to my knowledge nobody is planning to live in a refrigerator box under the underpass next year because i mean i've heard harriet owen and uh lily williams are, are heading to raleigh i think and uh leanne and lily are headed to raleigh Harriet, I don't know if her contract has been announced yet, so I'm not going to announce it for her, but Harriet is also signed with a team. Uh, We have other riders that have gone on to other teams. We have a few that are doing their own thing next year. And my team director, Tad Hamilton, has also moved on to another program for next year, which, again, he'll announce that, or the program will announce it when they're ready. But everybody has moved on to... Good things, good things where I think everyone will have an opportunity to continue thriving and growing. Some people see the the end of a team, the end of a sponsorship in a negative way. I'm personally not one of them because I believe that part of every story is the end. The concept of the permanence of the impermanence is something that we need to to celebrate. You've reached the end of the road for Hoggins, Berman, Superman. Have you reached the end of the road for your love of bike racing? No, not at all. Uh, I still intend to race bikes next year and for however many years after that. I just don't want to run a team and people say, oh, you'll change your mind. But nope, pretty sure. Pretty sure I will not be running a team again. And I've kind of had my fill of professional cycling at this point. Not that I don't want to race in some of those awesome events, but being part of the rat race of trying to move up and get a better contract and get a chance to go to bigger races and go to Europe and do other things that are typically associated with the business of professional cycling, I feel very over that. And I just love riding my bike. I like training. I like racing my bike. I like doing hard group rides. I will enter some events next year, some road and some gravel. I don't need to be part of a team if given an opportunity to be on a composite team for some of the stage races. That would be cool, and I would love to do that because I always liked being a domestique and working for the people who had the skills to finish off a race, but I just don't want to be part of the business of pro cycling anymore. Did the team go out the way that you wanted it to go out? I mean, I was there at Benton Park on the last day of Gateway Cup. So, 
I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I want to hear it from you. Did things end in the fairy tale way that you wanted them to end? I don't think I had a, a resolution in my mind that would have been ideal or otherwise. So the tough thing is the team had this incredible energy where everybody loved each other and we raced hard and we had tons of inside jokes and endless WhatsApp messages about those inside jokes and so many laughs and so many good times. But I knew that Hoggins Berman was ending their sponsorship well in advance of when all the riders knew. And so I had time to process it before I told them. So it was like, I was sad for a little bit and then I moved on and then I told them and they were sad for a little bit. And that was a period of maybe the team will continue. Maybe I'll find another title sponsor Maybe, maybe, maybe. And then I realized I didn't want to and just couldn't. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I notified the riders, and that was a little bit more sadness. And then everybody just moved forward because that's what you have to do. If you want a job in pro cycling, you don't have the luxury of sitting around and waiting. Either you're good enough that people are contacting you or... Maybe you're good enough, but you're under the radar, so you have to hustle. So people had to take action fairly quickly. And, you know, there was definitely that feeling of it's senior year and we're all savoring the last moments together. But in a way, it felt sort of like the climax of everything was maybe mid-season. And then after that, it was just sort of tapering off. And people became accustomed to the idea that it was the end and they made other plans and they started thinking about the future. And so by the time we got to Gateway... You're looking for me to say, yes, it was great because we won the last day. And that was great. And there was definitely a lot of emotion around that. And it was meaningful. But I guess at least for me, it wasn't like that was some big finale and massive crescendo of emotion and feeling and culmination of everything. It was just sort of a step we went through as we wrapped everything up. Because then after that... I still had to come back to Scottsdale and break down everything in the service course and get the van and trailer back and deal with all the equipment. And that didn't wrap up for at least a few more weeks. Switch gears a little bit for me here. I don't know if you know this, but I, I have a huge soft spot for photography. My father was a photographer in Chicago, actually ran his own studio for about 40 years before he retired. Given my dad's position, I really love and appreciate photography and I view its role in sport as probably being more important than even video and of, of races and things like that. One of the relationships that you Superman developed was with a, an organization called snowy mountain photography, correct? Yes. So who is, what is snowy mountain? Uh, snowy mountain is a pair of photographers, husband and wife team, that worked with Supermint for the last two seasons. Why did you view it as important to have you as the owner, the GM, to have a photography team come with you? I think a lot of cycling teams struggle to remember that while it is important to win races and find success in the events, ultimately it's a business and the sponsors are engaging because they're hoping to get a return on their investment. And that ROI is generally best captured and delivered through content that they can use in their marketing. And that content either comes from 
having to hustle at every race event to figure out, okay, who was the photographer that was there? Can we get photos? How do we pay for it? Blah, blah, blah. How do we get rights to it? Or you build your own structure for creating the content that you share with your sponsors because it's critical that they feel like you're giving them value and you're returning the promises that you're, you're returning on the promises you made to them. So from the beginning of the team, we've always had a photographer on staff because I don't know how else you can reliably and consistently provide content to your sponsors to support their investment in your team. I've always felt that that was critical. We also, as an organization, needed imagery we could use on our different channels to showcase what the team was doing because ultimately it does not matter if you win an event if nobody is there to capture it and share it with an audience. Cycling media coverage of events in the U.S. sometimes can be very limited if it even happens at all. And so we needed to be able to say, okay, on day two of Tour of the Gila, here's imagery of our fight to land in third place on the day. And by having photographers with us at the majority of our team events, we were able to have that continual content. And Snowy Mountain came to me in year two of the team. Um, Later in the summer, actually, one of the riders on the team had sent me a link to one of their galleries from a race that we had not had an official team presence at and had said, hey, here's some photos that you can get from them to use for content for our sponsors for those events. And the photos were great. And I ended up talking to Morley and Nathan, who are the couple behind Snowy Mountain. And they agreed to come on board with the team for 2018 and 2019. And they became part of our family. I mean, they they were as much part of the team as any of the riders and really helped to create the image of Huggins, Berman, Superman over the last two years and also gave us content that the sponsors loved. chapter two of today's episode with Lindsay Goldman, but not obvious. So much happens behind the scenes in running a professional bike racing team, in being a professional bike racer, that we never see. There is a a moving circus that happens when you go from Littleton to San Rafael to Winston-Salem to Harlem and everywhere in between. And that moving circus requires so much logistics, so much know-how, and so much management of personalities, people, and equipment. And unless you know what you're doing or have great advice and support, it can overwhelm even the most sophisticated and savvy of people. But Lindsay managed it. So I wanted to explore with her what are the things that she learned to help the future generations of Lindsay Goldman's who are to follow her. If you could go back four years worth of experience and and tell the young Lindsay Goldman of four years ago, what would be the biggest lesson that you would give her about running a team, being a GM? The biggest thing I struggled with was understanding how to lead 
at the beginning, I think I thought leadership was something you did by force or being aloof or being intimidating. It felt like something you had to like shove yourself into and or assert. I guess that's the best word. You had to assert yourself into being the leader and that I needed to be this type of personality to lead the team. And that didn't work. And I really struggled with trying to figure out how to be human and a rider. And for me as a rider, I was always very anxious. And on race day, I would get moody and quiet. And I was very open with my feelings, whether I was unhappy or stressed or anxious or anything. Uh, I was this weird mix of overly personal and also aloof. And I think people probably would have said I was a bitch. And over time and in meeting my current husband, who is an excellent leader, you know, he was in the Marines, he has a lot of leadership experience professionally, and he's gotten to the point in his career where it seems fairly effortless. And I watched a lot of what he did, and I saw how he did things and learned a lot about what I was doing wrong. And so over the years, I learned what parts of myself to hold back and that Being a leader does not mean you act like you have the biggest dick in the room or that you are meaner than everybody. It's instilling a confidence in the people that you are trying to lead, that they can trust you and that you have their back and that you will handle issues and that they don't need to worry about those things because you've got it. And I think that was the biggest shift. Instead of letting people know when I was stressed or sharing things about the team that were stressing me out or making me unhappy... I started to hold those things back and there'd be times where I would open up a text message to send to one of my friends on the team to complain about something or someone. And then I would stop and think that's not, it's not their job to hear this. And it is my job to deal with it quietly and move on. And so if I needed to vent about those things or have feelings, I did them at home with my husband or with, you know, friends that were not part of the team. So for the most part, my riders and staff saw a fairly steady, calm presence that they knew would keep everything moving, that they could trust, that had their back, and that was going to ensure that the team ran successfully. I want to go back to Benton Park, but I don't want to do 2019. I want to do 2018. You broke away halfway through what is a grueling race, but it's not just you break away, you stay away through till the end and ultimately win. There's a lot more going on kind of behind the scenes from your perspective as a, as a new mother and as a GM and as a team owner, as somebody who's trying to come back to the elite level. Can you walk us through kind of the, the, what that win means to you? Yeah. At the time it was, I don't want to say it's not now, but at the time it was very exciting. Uh, in my role as a domestique, and that's not like I was stuck in that role permanently, but it was one that I just, it, it seemed to best suit my strengths. And in that role, getting on the podium doesn't come very often. It takes the right combination of circumstances. And my director would have described me as an opportunistic rider where Generally, I'm not going to win a sprint and I'm not going to win a mountaintop finish. But if everything aligns, I'm able to 
have the right moment come together and I can win. And that's what happened that day. Uh, there was a, a few things that happened. There was a lull in the race for a moment that came on the heels of a great attack from Skylar Schneider, who is on the world tour level and very strong. And I saw that as the right opportunity. I attacked, I got a gap, I kept going and ultimately it led to a win. So that was really exciting, um, partly because I won a national level race, which hadn't happened that much in my career, and partly because my husband and daughter were there to see it, and it was the end of the season for me, and it was exciting to deliver that win for the team, and partly because I had just come back from having a baby six months earlier. So obviously there was some measure of defying the odds all around. Most people don't think of women in their six-month postpartum after a C-section period as being at the top of their game athletically and well. I definitely wasn't in 2018. There were still good moments, and that Benton Park race happened to fall on one of those days. I want to go and talk about something you and Bill Scheichen had talked about on the Dirtfield recordings, the the most recent episode of that. Uh, I asked Bill about it when he was on this show. It happens to deal with money in bike racing. And as a professional, we have to admit that money is a part of the sport. And having money for your team is what makes you a professional and what makes your team capable of competing because I don't think people understand how much money it actually takes to get a group of men or women to a race with the equipment that they need, with the support that they need. So just for our sake, how much money do you feel that it really takes to run an authentic professional team in the United States? Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million a year, at least. Where does that money go? For my team, a large percentage of that went to salaries for riders, staff, and contractors that we brought on. Um, The next largest expense would be travel, and that includes airfare, gas, parking, lodging where we don't have host housing, uh, anything related to travel. So you name it, if it involves moving from point A to point B, that goes in that bucket. The next biggest expense would be race entries. I think this past year we spent somewhere in the neighborhood of 16000 on race entries. And then after that, there's a lot of sub-expenses, you know, things for marketing, recurring website costs, paying an accounting service just to track expenses so we can then do taxes at the end of the year. Uh, even little things you don't think of. I pay a fee through the bank every month to do direct deposit for the team. You know, incidentals like the van broke down on the side of the road and now we have to replace this expensive thing or uh, equipment costs. This past year, we we did not have nearly as many equipment costs as the previous three years, but there's still unforeseen expenses and, you know, so-and-so's TT bars broke in shipping. We need to replace them or this thing went wrong, you name it. Where do we get this money from? I mean, obviously, I know Hoggins Berman was a huge supporter of yours, and there's a lot of 
other sponsors who were were a sponsor. I'm not talking about specific people or specific companies, but as a as a community, where do we need to look in order to get the money to run the sport that we all love? Well, at the moment, we exist in this unsustainable model of basically relying on generous benefactors who choose to come into the sport and give money and then they stop doing it when they want, which is well within their right. That's what happened with Hoggins Berman. Steve Berman supported the team for four years and then decided to move on. And, you know, without him, we would never have existed. So, of course, I'm grateful. But I look at this model that, you know, Floyd's Pro Cycling just announced, I think, today that the team is folding because Floyd Landis decided not to fund the team for another year. And again, it's well within his right. It's his money to spend as he wants. But this model right now where teams exist because people oftentimes behind companies, but ultimately it's people who are motivated about cycling, decide to support a team. And then when they can no longer justify it or no longer want to or have a new cause to move on to, they take their money and thus the team folds. Uh, There's also industry sponsors that support teams with money as well as product, and that's another source of current income for teams that allows them to exist. But again, that's not, in a lot of cases, the financial contribution does not necessarily match what that sponsor gets out of it in terms of return. So it's also unsustainable. Ultimately, the sport needs to reform and figure out ways to generate revenue on its own. So teams, events, sponsors are not trapped in the current cycle of being at the mercy of some outside force that determines whether or not they exist. If we, I say we, but if professional cycling were to find a way to be self-sustaining, to generate revenue. And obviously we're not really selling tickets, but there are models that could be examined. And there are people who have done studies on this and there are people who have come up with examples of how this could look. But if if the sport were to become self-sustaining, that would create a much healthier model that would allow teams and events to continue based on their merit and their successful execution versus basically the whim of the people who own them. Well, Lindsay Goldman, thank you for being the first guest of the second season. I am very flattered to have been your first guest. Thank you for joining us on this first episode of the second season of No Training Wheels. When you finish off the first season with an interview of somebody like Rasan Bahati, somebody who's a legend in his own time, you have to set the stage for the second season with somebody who's equally capable. And in Lindsay Goldman, we've found that person and her future career as the director of membership for USA Cycling is an ideal fit for somebody who has her skill set and has her personality and has her capabilities. I want to step back from bike racing for a few seconds and dedicate this episode to my mother, Barbara Kelly. My mom passed uh, recently, actually in between the time that this interview was recorded and when it has been released, and she was my rock. She was the person who drove me to early morning swim practices. She was the person who made sure that I had lunch every day and 
helped set me up for the success that my life has seen. Without such a strong, driven woman in my life, I never would have been able to get through high school or college or law school, start a practice, and compete at the highest level in two different sports. And her passing is really challenging and and really difficult. It reminds me of the importance of having people around you who are capable of making you the better version of yourself that you deserve to be. And interviewing Lindsay, I realized that she is also a strong, driven person, just like my mother was. And her daughter is so incredibly fortunate to have her. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. We have an incredible second season planned with some really great athletes, some really great coaches, and some phenomenal stories of triumph and success. The world of bike racing in 2020, especially on the road, is looking so much brighter and so much more positive than a lot of people give it credit for. And through this season, I want to explore that positivity and that potential with everybody. Please visit the website, www.notrainingwheelspod.com, or send us an email to notrainingwheelspod at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you've got any thoughts or ideas on guests for future shows and in future seasons. Until next time, see you out on MacArthur Boulevard.